This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of uh, Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of having on the podcast uh, uh, two uh, leading authorities in the field of uh, gynecologic oncology and uh, gynecologic oncology research. Uh, the first is uh, Jacobus uh, Fisterer, who is with the EGO Study Group and Gynecologic Oncology Center in Kiel, Germany. And the second is a, is a returning guest. It's uh, Philip Harder, uh, who is in the clinic in Essen Mieten in Essen, Germany. And the topic of this discussion is going to be the um, manuscript that was published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, titled Optimal Treatment Duration of Bevacizumab as Frontline Therapy for Advanced Ovarian Cancer, the AGO OVAR 17 Boost uh, Hineco. OV118 and got OV15 open label randomized phase three trial. So Jacobus and, and Philip, welcome and thank you so much uh, once again for accepting our invitation to join us in the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. So uh, I know obviously it's an important topic and uh, we, we have a lot of questions that we wanted to uh, go over on the podcast. So we'll get started with uh, Jacobus, if, if that's okay. And um, I wanted to uh, start by discussing how Bevacizumab came to the forefront of adjuvant therapy, you know, particularly uh, the results of the landmark trials, GOG218 and the other trial uh, from the AGO group, uh, ICON7. Uh, and also, what was the duration of therapy for Bevacizumab in each of these trials? So there were, it's more than 10 years ago, there were two phase three trials addressing the question whether the addition of an anti-angiogenic drug, in that case, bevacizumab, um, could improve or would improve efficacy of first-line treatment in advanced ovarian cancer. Um, there are differences between both trials. The US trial, GOG218, um, included only patients who had at least microscopic residual tumor. Second, um, the duration of the treatment with the bevacizumab was up to 15 months. Mm -hmm. And um, third, the dosing of the bevacizumab was 15 milligram, milligram per kilogram body weight. The second trial in the, uh, driven by different European groups with the acronym ICAN7 or in Germany, ATO over 11, um, used bevacizumab um, for, with 7.5 milligrams and only up to 12 months. And this trial included also patients without any residual tumor at the end of the surgery. Um, so there are big differences. And in both trials, um, there was an improvement in progression-free survival of roughly 3.5 months in the US trial and 2.4 or 2.6 months in the European trial. And that, that was the situation when we discussed the trial design of the HEO over 17, the BOOST trial. When the results came up, we were a little bit disappointed because we expected more from the bevacizumab. Mm -hmm. And we thought, what was the reason that the, the improvement in efficacy was that small? 
Um, we thought um, and discussed it that it could be the dosing of the bevacizumab, 7.5 versus 15, or the duration of treatment. In, in the US trial, although it was not intended, the majority of the patient, patients was treated until progression. And in the European trial, the majority of patients was not treated until progression. And it, the, the bevacizumab stopped earlier. And so after long and extensive dis discussions, we came to the answer that we um, should do this trial using bevacizumab with 15 milligrams. And from the scientific rationale, we should treat the patients until progression. Okay, and since you cannot write in a protocol because you would have some patients who would never progress, uh, give it lifelong, then you have to cut it. And so we have chosen the 30 months, um, assuming that the vast majority of patients would have had a progress in the meantime, and the minority who uh, did not progress until month 30, um, that they can stop the treatment. Great. Thank you, uh, Jacobus. And, and as a, just a, a follow-up to that, um, <clears throat> you looked at the uh, the objective of, of the study as uh, progression-free survival, and you mentioned a little bit about the uh, the the thirty months, um, and uh, and you alluded to a little bit of about the details as to the thirty months. But why specifically thirty? It was it was just doubling uh, the standard treatment, fifteen months. Assuming this until, that until month 30, the majority of patients would have had a progress of the disease and the minority who would have no progressive of the progressing disease could stop it. That was the reason for that. Great. And um, I'll switch over to uh, Philip now. And uh, Philip, can you tell us a little bit about the design of this particular study, the AGO OVAR 17 boost, as it pertains to the treatment arms and the inclusion criteria, as well as uh, reiterating what the primary objective was? Yes, I think as um, Jacobus already pointed out, our primary objective was to prolong, firstly, progression-free survival, by a longer treatment duration. The inclusion exclusion criteria were very similar regarding all the bevacizumab related restrictions like thrombosis, embolism, etc. And we were also very close to the text of the approval of bevacizumab in Europe. Mm. We did not include compared to some other trials, patients with stage one or stage two disease, so all the patients which were included were also patients which could be treated according to our national guidelines and just half of them <coughs> doubled the treatment duration. Great, and, um, and you, you mentioned a little bit about the, uh, the inclusion uh, criteria and uh, Jacobus, I was wondering if you can emphasize uh, who was not uh, included in the, in the trial. What, what were the exclusion criteria? Yeah, that's very easy. Um, we excluded non-epithelial ovarian tumors, borderline tumors, mm. and patients who have contraindications against a bevacizumab treatment, for example, uncontrolled hypertension, etc. Um, and 
This is also a difference to other trials. It was not allowed to uh, include patients with a planned interval debulking after mm. neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So it was only primary surgical debulking followed by the systemic treatment allowed. Great. And, and um, one of the questions always, obviously, particularly when you're looking at uh, progression-free survival, um, how was the surveillance assessed? Was it by just CA125 or both CA125 and imaging criteria? It, 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 was, it was assessed by um, RESIST version 1.1, and it was an investigator assessment. So CA-125 was only of minor importance for this. Great. Um, and Philip, I wanted to ask you, because I was reading the, in the methods uh, section, um, something about restricted mean survival time. Um, can you share with us uh, why um, is this used and, uh, you know, when, when there may be non-proportional hazards identified? Okay, could I call our statistician now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I can tell you what I understood from our statistician. Okay, perfect. <laughs> if you have um, non-proportional hazards, which you could identify by crossing curves in the Kaplan-Meier figure, then you don't, you should not use the usually log rank testing, then you should look for the mean restricted survival. Then this is a more appropriate methodology to compare the data. So this is my um, explanation as a non-statistician physician. Perfect. Yes, very well. So <laughs> now, uh, uh having uh, gone through the methodology, um, <laughs> what would you highlight as the main results <laughs> of the study? And what would you say, these are the main take-home messages from this study and, and what we should carry forward? Yeah, um, the primary endpoint, as I said before, was progression-free survival. And we could not find any difference in median progression-free survival uh, between the treatment arms. It was in the standard arm, approximately 24 months, and in the extended uh, 30 months, arm, approximately 26 months. And there was also with the restricted mean progression-free survival analysis, no difference between the treatment arms in the primary objective. And then we did a subgroup analysis according to stage and residual tumor. Mm -hmm. And as expectable, we had in the in the group of and the subgroup with no residual tumor a much better progression-free survival in both arms but not, differing, not mm -hmm. different between the arms, approximately 38 months. And the same for the restricted mean analysis with 51. And in the group of uh, people, of patients with, with residual tumor, it was shorter with um, 19 and 18 months in both treatment arms, but also not different between both arms. And as a secondary objective, the overall survival was with 55 for the 15-month group and 60 months for the 30-month treatment group, not different. Hmm. So, Jacobus, one of the questions, and uh, as you mentioned now in, in your main results, 
um, and we this was a discussion we had uh, as we went over the results. In, in, in GOG 218, the median progression for survival was, I believe, 15 months. In ICON 7, it was 19 months. In Paula 1, I believe, it was 17 months. And in, in the Imagine uh, trial, was 18 months. So one of the questions was, how do you explain the longer median progression-free survival of 24.2 and 26 months in the, in both arms of, of this study? Yeah, um, it's the surgery. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm a little bit kidding. Um, there, there <laughs> Philip are, would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> there are there were different inclusion and exclusion criteria. For example, in the in the imagin, um, only patients with residual tumor were allowed. The same for GOG two eighteen. Um, um, uh, in in the ICAN seven, it was an all comer trial as well as for um, over seventeen. So so it it's very easily explained. That we have here a better a better progression-free survival. Yes, because we had here in our in our in this study, we had more than 50, nearly 60 percent of the patients without residual tumor at the end of the primary surgery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so it, it definitely may. may and that's impact. still the main prognostic factor. So that explains very easily the longer PFS compared to other trials. Very well. And and I'll uh, turn over to Philip now with regards to the duration of bevacizumab. The median duration, I believe, in this study uh, was 13.2 months for the standard arm and 15.5 months in the experimental arm. So why do you think it is so somewhat similar, given that wouldn't one expect the duration of treatment would be greater in the experimental arm? I think this is a very important observation. And I was aware of this for the first time when I've saw, seen your, your questions. I think um, if you have a look in the details um, about these prognosis and the PFS events, so I think about maybe <clears throat> um, 30 to 40% already um, stopped because of a um, PFS event. Mm -hmm. And we also, I think we all know that bevacizumab and toxicity is in correlation with the treatment duration. So then, I and I think in this trial, we were all very well used to um, <clears throat> also um, look for the side effects and all the toxicity management. And I think at the end, um, at least in this patient population where you're losing also already a certain amount of patients because of a PFS event, maybe just some additional um, patients who stop for toxicity, then mm. at the end you have very similar treatment durations. However, if you look at the interquartile range, then there were also a um, high amount of patients in the experimental arm who received full treatment um, for up to 30 months. Mm. It's just to have a look at it, but I think um, this is also explained by the PFS events in the experimental arm before. Great. Um, and, and Philip, and may, may you... I add? May yes, I please. add the sentence? Yeah. Always, please. The, if, if you take a look to the relative dose intensity, <clears throat> um, it was for the bevacizumab uh, in total 97% in both arms. 
And there were also no difference in the bevacizumab dose intensity during the chemotherapy phase between mm -hmm. the arms, as well as in the maintenance phase. And it was again 96 and 97%. Okay. All right. Very well. And, and, I'll, and uh, I want to come back to that in a, in a few minutes as well. Uh, but Philip, I wanted to ask you, um, the ROSIA trial, I was wondering if you can explain to our audience a, a little bit about that trial. Um, the progression-free survival in that trial was 25 months, um, which um, was somewhat longer uh, than in this study. And why do you think they showed a benefit to prolong bevacizumab and in, in this study, the, there was no uh, benefit in, in that setting. But Rosia was a single arm trial. So it's just a single arm phase 3B trial, just looking mainly for toxicity. And there was no um, comparison to any standard treatment. Mm -hmm. Regarding the duration of therapy, I think you have to add that patients from stage one with some risk factors up to stage four were included. Mm. In all other trials, except the ICAN-7 trial, only patients with advanced ovarian cancer were included. And in the ROSIA trial, at the end, all patients, um, irrespective of the fecal stage and residual disease, were allowed. So I think it's really hard to compare this data to all the other trials. Very well. Um, Jacobus, back to you with regards to now the toxicity, you know, and obviously that's a concern for many uh, patients and uh, clinicians. Um, was extended use of bevacizumab associated with much more adverse events? Yes, it was. Uh, there, there, there were more adverse events um associated with the prolonged bevacizumab treatment um for example we had a little bit more grade three and higher hypertension in the experimental arm mm -hmm. in the, the standard arm we had 20 percent compared to 25 percent in the in the 30 months arm the same for proteinuria grade three and higher we had two percent in the standard arm compared to four percent in the in the longer arm um, and we have also seen that this different the, this difference um, in toxicity occurred after month 15 hmm. very well but we had we had no not more fistula or intestinal perforations or uh, deaths etc very well so it was uh, just hypertension and proteinuria. Yeah, so it's so, sort of like the expected adverse events yeah. that one would typically yeah. see. Um, now, now, Philip, you mentioned that one of the limitations of the trial is the lack of information on BRCA status. It, it was not available in this study. Now, and of course, obviously, this is speculation, but do, do you think there's any impact or a proposal for longer duration of bevacizumab in patients who have a BRCA mutation? So me personally, I don't think so. And I think the data, there are some data, but I think at the end it's inconclusive and it's difficult to conclude that BRCA status plays a major role um, um, in the discussion regarding the BRCA status. I think this is a Clearly, this discussion is clearly dominated by the efficacy of the PARP inhibitors. 
Mm. It's also, if you have a look, for example, at the data of Paola and the Solo One trial, I think it's clear this is a question for the PARP inhibitors, and it's still open if we need an addition bevacizumab. And therefore, I would also be very cautious um, to discuss the use of bevacizumab, the single use of bevacizumab, just um, <clears throat> depending on the BSEA status. Very well. Um, and continuing on to discussion of the limitations, I'll turn to Jacobus for this. Um, one of the other potential limitations or criticism is that the, the trial was uh, prematurely discontinued. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, as I said before, this trial was designed in 2010. The recruitment mm -hmm. phase from, was from 2011 to 2013. And our statistician told us when they wrote the protocol and then the statistical part of the protocol that we would have enough events. I think they gave us 697 events and that would happen within the first five or six years after uh, finishing the recruitment, but it did not. And we took a look, a blind to the a blinded look to the to the treatment arms and saw that the event rate was dropping down from year to year. Mm. And um, in 2020, we saw that 29 additional PFS events would be required to trigger the event driven primary analysis. And the statisticians um, calculated that it, the, the chance to get another result if we close the trial or the follow-up of the trial um, was less than 7.5%. Mm. And if we would have waited until the, the, for the last 29 events, it, we were still today in the, in the follow-up phase. And so the trial steering committee decided to stop the follow-up and, and to do the um, analysis um, because the, the chance to achieve the planned event number with a promising result was not considered sufficient to, to, to justify a continued follow-up. And so yes, the database was locked and the analysis was performed. Yeah, and, and I'm glad that uh, you, uh, you've you articulated that uh, very well, because obviously there, there is a legitimacy to how these decisions are made uh, with regards to discontinuing the trial. And it's important, particularly for our young listeners, to, um, to have that uh, concept very, very clear. Um, now, Philip, I wanted to ask you, and... and um, you know, certainly the AGO has worked extensively on uh, data on secondary cytoreductive surgery. Um, and as it pertains to overall survival, and, and noting obviously this, this is a, 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 a different objective than the progression-free survival, but how many cases uh, underwent secondary cytoreductive surgery and could this have impacted the overall survival results? Um, so far, so Jacobus, please interrupt me if I'm wrong, but so far we have not looked um, in the details of the subsequent therapies. But right. however, if, as PFS is um, absolutely, um, there's no difference and also for OS is no difference. So therefore, me personally, 
I don't uh, would expect any difference regarding the use of subsequent therapies and surgeries, but so far, I don't know the details. Maybe Jacobus, you know some details, but for no, me- No, we, we, we uh, have not done that yet. Very well. So um, I wanted to get into a, a few questions <laughs> regarding your own practice. And I'll start with Jacobus. Um, as it pertains to the use of bevacizumab as uh, adjuvant treatment and, and maintenance therapy, um, do you recommend the duration today to your patients for use of uh, 15 months as in the, the boost uh, study or, or 24 months as in the uh, ROSIA trial? No, we are using the 15 months. So as Philip pointed out earlier, the ROSIA trial, it was not randomized. It was a single arm phase, phase 3B trial, and that's not enough to, to change current practice. Very well. Um, and in, in, in addition, in the, in the European Union, our Bevacizumab has a market authorization just for 15 months. So if we, if we would treat longer, it would be an off-label use. Very well. Okay. Um, and uh, Philip, as a, a follow-up question, uh, what about the, the use of Bevacizumab in combination with a PARP inhibitor? Um, how is this uh, coming into your practice? Yes, I think we are now in the lucky situation that we have multiple options how we could treat our patients. So in the past, we just had carboplatinum and paclitaxel, and this was a whole story. Then some years later, we could add bevacizumab. Now we could add a maintenance therapy with a PARP inhibitor, or we could even add a combination with bevacizumab and PARP inhibitor. And I think all the data that we have seen in the last years that there is a strong um, rationale to use PARP in inhibitors, especially in HIV-positive or BRCA-positive patients. And unfortunately, all of the trials, they started after cycle six with the randomization, mm. the PARP inhibitor trial. So we don't know what has happened in the first six cycles, how much patients really need to start with bevacizumab. And then maybe you could add the PARP inhibitor according to the PAOLA data in the HLE positive or BRCA positive patients or in which patient population is it enough just to use carboplatin and paclitaxel and to give thereafter the PARP inhibitor. For me, this question is absolutely open. So in patients with, let's say stage 3C upfront surgery, complete resection. I think you could use whatever you want to, but I don't know if there's really a strong must to give bevacizumab in addition. On the other hand, we very often see patients who started already chemotherapy at another hospital without any primary surgery. And mm. if we see a stable disease just by chemotherapy after three cycles, then this is a clear candidate to add bevacizumab because we know the response rate is maybe up to 20% higher with the addition of bevacizumab. So for me, it's open. And I think this is all the reason why we have some ongoing trials, um, especially looking at this question. Excellent. And, um, and as a follow-up to that, um, <laughs> with regards to the addition of bevacizumab to other regimens, um, I wanted to ask you, in your, in your platinum-sensitive recurrent patients, 
when you begin second line therapy, do you routinely add um, bevacizumab to your regimen? So for example, a patient uh, who comes in and undergoes treatment with carboplatinum and liposomal doxorubicin, do you routinely add bevacizumab to that regimen as well? I think now it's a different discussion depending on the continent where you're treating patients. <laughs> so, <laughs> so from a European perspective, we are a little bit jealous because in, in Europe, it's only approved to use it once. We mm. cannot use it for a second time. We cannot use it um, after progressive disease, despite we have good data from the METO trial and also from another trial from Jacobus was carboplatin, PLD, and Bevacizumab, so um, in Europe, it's only allowed to use it once, and it's up mm. to you if you use it first line or second line or, uh, or later. Excellent. But you cannot repeat it, unfortunately. <laughs> Very well. So I, uh, I really enjoyed, obviously, speaking with both of you. I have one last question, and, and happy to hear from both of you. Um, what's next? Uh, what's next in line as it pertains to the study of maintenance therapy in patients with uh, ovarian cancer? And um, I'll, start, I'll start with you, Philip. Yes, I just <laughs> started answering this question. So we in Germany, as a European trial, we just started the HAO OVAR 28 trial, uh, where all patients with high-grade advanced ovarian cancer could be included and the patients are randomized upfront at cycle two. Um, to carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, followed by niraparib and bevacizumab, or only niraparib maintenance therapy. Hmm. I think this trial, and this is irrespective of the HRD status, is the inclusion possible. And I think this trial hopefully could answer if we need the combination or if single agent maintenance is enough, or maybe we all said some good data that we could better select which patients need a combination and which not because as already pointed out unfortunately the trials so far they started randomization after end of six cycles and we don't know what is happening before and i hope this trial could clarify i think on the other hand um, we will have some very um, exciting data coming in the next months or maybe in the next 12 months from multiple phase three trials we did in the last years all the advanced ovarian cancer regarding the combination of PARP inhibitors plus minus bevacizumab and a checkpoint inhibitor. So far we have just seen the data from the Imagen trial with <clears throat> artesolizumab and bevacizumab, um, but we, I'm sure that we will see some data end of this year, also from all the other trials, the duo trials, the first trial, and so was also a peperizumab trial. So we could really look forward to get some better and more data um, about this question of the use of a checkpoint inhibitor. And I don't know, maybe all the data from the Athena trial from the combination arm will also be available. So therefore, I think it will be very uh, important, very interesting year, but so far, we don't know okay. <laughs> if all the diets are positive or Excellent. So, and uh, Jacobus, do you have any uh, additional comments you wanted to uh, add? No, Philip, Philip pointed out everything. <laughs> so, yes. 
No, absolutely. It's really uh, a lot of a lot of exciting uh, projects ongoing, and uh, looking forward to uh, to those results. But I wanted to uh, certainly thank you both. Uh, I really had a, a great time speaking with you. Uh, always learn from speaking with uh, with uh, with you guys and uh, Jacobus. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation, Philip. As always, we appreciate you uh, and the time that, that you put into uh, uh, helping us with uh, with the podcast. Uh, thank you both, uh, obviously, for the contributions you've made to gynecologic oncology and research in in this field. And congratulations to you and all of your co-authors on on this manuscript. Great job! Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So... <laughs>